Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Rima Katz. Today, we're diving into the intricate world of transaction fraud trends, exploring the factors that are fueling the surge in opportunities for fraudsters, particularly during peak shopping days. We're going to go into the various types of fraud, zooming in on account-to-account and peer-to-peer fraud specifically, and discuss the vulnerabilities that consumers are facing. Joining me today to dig into this is Carrie Thomas, Senior Vice President of Fraud and Decisioning Products at MasterCard, and Kevin Libby, Analyst of Fraud and Security at Javelin Strategy and Research. They're also going to share insights into merchant scams, in addition to a highly sophisticated form of social engineering that's targeting those in pursuit of a quick profit. And of course, we can't overlook the pivotal role of technology in this battle against fraud. Carrie and Kevin, we have a lot to explore today. To start things off, fraud is on the rise, as we've seen. Carrie, what factors are contributing to heightened opportunities for fraudsters, particularly during you know peak shopping days? Yeah, I think what we're seeing today is obviously where payments in general have expanded. So now you're moving into this world that goes beyond like traditional card and cash, where you've got real-time payments, you've got various ways to just move and send money that we just that just didn't exist before even crypto payments right it's like it's it's turning into a it's turning into a hodgepodge of ways to to kind of move money and do commerce and then you add the heightened transaction flows of the holiday season and it becomes this breeding ground for fraudsters to really start to to take advantage and what they're really playing on is the emotion of the consumers right And a lot of the new trends, as we've kind of moved from a different form of victim fraud, where it used to be, I steal information via like online channels or dark web to, no, I'm going to get you to give me the information. And I'm going to do that through manipulation, through the emotional pulls. And, And when you think about the holiday season, what's more emotional than, hey, I'm buying a gift for a loved one. I'm celebrating a season. I'm traveling. So you've got this like perfect kind of kind of environment for for fraudsters to really play on those emotions. And I and I think that's really what makes this particular time of the year really critical because you've got that that influx of transactions and all the consumer emotions that that go into the season that that really really make it a hotbed for for the bad guys to take advantage. Yeah, I, I would echo the same. I think the whole social engineering aspect and preying on emotions is huge. I think too a, a prominent factor that's presenting opportunities for uh, criminals these days is just that consumers are increasingly turning their attention online for everything, right? Everything from socializing to shopping to banking. And I think that that presents criminals with opportunities to take advantage of the anonymity and ambiguity that online interactions provide. As you mentioned, uh, criminals are very adept at social engineering. And I think the fewer cues you have from body language to appearance to environment in which you encounter a criminal, uh, the fewer cues you have from which to discover their ruse, uh, the better their chances are of taking advantage of you. And I think as a population, we've not yet learned how to reliably and properly adapt our natural warning or alert systems to identify when things don't quite make sense and seem off in a digital world. We're still kind of learning that as a society, I think. Along with that, I would say that another prominent factor uh, contributing to the rise in fraud is criminal's use of technology. It's helping criminals to circumvent anti-fraud measures and to scam consumers in new and creative ways. I I often argue that criminals and fraud prevention specialists are in a constant arms race of sorts, 
wherein they're continually trying to outpace and outsmart one another. Uh, and just as fraud specialists have access to a wealth of newer technology to fight criminal activity, the criminals themselves have access to much of the same, uh, including artificial intelligence, uh, which can make running scams or circumventing fraud detection and prevention protocols that much easier. There's a lot of different types of fraud that's out there, but you know, for those that are not familiar with it, Kevin, maybe you can start us off. You know, what is account to account or peer to peer fraud, and why is this particular type of fraud increasingly rising? Sure. So A to A and P to P transactions, or account to account, or peer to peer transactions, uh, simply refer to the alternative payment systems that have been set up. Uh, they allow for users to send funds to another party directly and quickly, rather than having to go through a commercial payment system like a checkout card or a bill pay program, uh, which is often offered through your bank or uh, a commercial business. Uh, as far as A to A and P2P fraud is concerned, it's, of course, any means by which a criminal defrauds a consumer by exploiting these payment systems. And that can take two forms. Uh, either the criminal can steal a consumer's personal identifiable information, and use it to access their P2P accounts and send money to themselves or purchase products, or the criminal can scam a consumer into sending funds through P2P channels themselves. As far as the magnitude of the problem is concerned, uh, it's in large part attributable to the fact that P2P and A2A transactions are growing in popularity among consumers and criminals alike. Consumers are in increasingly drawn to P2P transactions because they're most often free they're very convenient, and you can basically move money between individuals as easily and quickly as if it were cash. Whereas for criminals, they're drawn to P2P platforms because the funds settle quickly, and setting up transfers as simple as providing the consumer with an email address or phone number to send the payment to. And as far as exactly measuring the prevalence of P2P fraud is concerned, Javelin's most recent fraud survey showed that in 2022, among fraud victims that experienced unauthorized access to a financial account, 23% said that the criminal infiltrated their P2P account specifically. Even more than that, 29% of scam victims that suffered a loss were defrauded through peer-to-peer -peer payment systems. So there's no doubt that A to A and P2P fraud is for sure a serious problem. Terry, are you seeing the same on your end specifically for this type of fraud? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think we're in this kind of, and, and Kevin alluded to it, right? Anything that's new in payments often doesn't have the same controls, the same regulations, the same kind of understanding of the risk. And so when things are introduced, they're often introduced to solve a problem, whether it be whether it be speed, whether it be convenience. And in implementing those things, there's often not the the knowledge of the risk that goes with it. And so what we end up seeing is obviously the fraudsters take advantage of it and you don't have the proper controls and tools in place to mitigate. And so we're definitely seeing those attacks and from a MasterCard perspective, we see them on the network. So even, even though these are these are account-to-account -account transactions, when you think about you know, some of the providers that are out there, you can link a card, a debit card to those, or, or even a credit card to those, and then use those to transfer, transfer money. So you know, the transaction, even though it's a real-time payment, is actually happening on the card rail. So a lot of the solutions, like for example, you know, I manage our fraud scoring product decision intelligence. And it's designed to identify risk across transactions and behaviors. And we're seeing a significant rise in those transactions, even on the card network. And then you expand that 
to those more traditional DDA to DDA or, or savings types of transfers as well. And it's even affecting businesses. So, you know, we often talk about consumers, but, you know, those, those manipulations can even affect B2B and, and, other, and other channels as well. So definitely a big uprise from what we're seeing on our side as well. Sounds like fraudsters are everywhere. As a consumer, for all the consumers that are listening, what can they do to really protect themselves from this? So look, I think from my perspective and, and really what we try to what we try to do in terms of education is key. I think I think the the biggest thing that we as you know, whether it be financial institutions or payment brands or facilitators can do is to educate the consumers because this is different, right? I mean, you know, traditional when people think fraud, they think unauthorized payments and transactions. Well, these are authorized. I mean, but they're authorized through that manipulation that we talked about in the beginning, right? So the best way to prevent and, and particularly actually sits with the consumer, it sits with the person that's that's initiating that transfer, or, you know, because it, it is a push, right? It is It is sending. And so awareness, and it starts with trust. You have to trust, you know, what's who's on the other side of that payment what's on the other side of that payment. And it requires a little bit of due diligence, right? You have to, you, you, you need to investigate. If you, get, if you get a text or an email and there's a link, don't trust it, look it up. You know, like go directly to the website because they're so sophisticated now that they will very much attack you where, where they know you, right? I mean, because emails and address and, and, things, and things like that are so readily available, a lot of times these bad guys realize, oh, you have an Amazon account. You have a PayPal account. You have these different types of services. I'm going to send you an email or or a link that looks just like that solution that you that you uh, or that you leverage, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use that to manipulate you into sharing data. And so, you know, the reality is is understanding that anyone that you do business with typically isn't gonna ask you for personal information like that. And so you have to kind of be cautious and not and not share that and 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 always kind of have that bit of skepticism with anything you're doing. And if you want to be safe, go directly to, you know, to the provider rather than just sharing your information online. I know, Kevin, if you have anything to add. Yeah, I think you hit the highlights there. I like what you said about education and due diligence uh, in particular. I think you can't uh, overestimate the value of providing somebody even a little bit of knowledge. I think it goes a long way. And for consumers, I think if they don't know that a particular scam or a particular fraud type exists, then they don't know to look out for it in the first place, let alone what telltale signs there might be. So I think uh, I know financial institutions, for example, have made tremendous strides in the last several years uh, in terms of providing some of that education to consumers through their websites. And I think that that's invaluable. Um, just knowing what sorts of things to look out for. Uh, you mentioned unsolicited phishing emails and texts, things like that. Uh, the very fact that if somebody over the phone or over text or email is asking for information that you're not inclined to share with anybody, right? Your usernames, your passwords, your account information, for sure you don't want to provide it, right? Just like you said, if somebody's truly, if an imposter, which is often what scammers end up being, they're telling you that they're calling from your bank or they're calling from a government agency, uh, and that there's some debt due or you have to come even with them, send the money in some fashion. If somebody's asking for that information over the phone, they're not going to be legit. If they're doing it over text, same thing. And if they're truly looking to collect a debt, then you're not going to lose the opportunity to make things right with them by hanging up and calling them directly, right? Find a number you can verify, reach out to them, 
make sure that what you're being told is true before you take any additional actions. You both touched upon this already in terms of what financial institutions are doing to combat some of these attacks, educating consumers being one of them. But what else are they doing? And Carrie, what else should they be doing? Look, obviously, it starts with prevention and prevention, you know, starts with awareness, especially when 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 it's authorized. But the reality is, is AI has allowed us to leverage, you know, data to draw, you know, to really, really correlate activities across basically large groups of fraudsters or organized crime and, and actually see activity across. And, you know, leveraging AI is something that, you know, MasterCard's doing in the space to prevent this. I, we know many of the many of the providers out there and, and banks are looking at these types of solutions and technologies to really identify this type of fraud specifically. And it, and it starts with data. So, I mean, the things that banks should be doing is making sure that, you know, they're capturing the fraud, that they're actually like identifying these events and that they're and they're looking at the data associated with it to be able to draw those correlations. And then they're training their models to be able to to predict and detect it and implement them. And so there's there's a number of providers out there that can help support that. And so we encourage that. And then also just because these interactions will often involve applications that facilitate the transfers Certainly stronger IDNV, verification, authentication are things that can help deter and, and mitigate and protect things like access. So even if you've even if you've given inadvertently you've given the wrong information to a fraudster, if they've implemented strong, you know, strong authentication, you know, on the bank website, it should pick up that, hey, there's a device that I haven't seen before. Right. And so, you know, you might get a text message saying, hey, some you know, such and such try to access your account. And that will prompt you to then, you know, make changes and, and things like that. So, you know, multi-factor authentication, just different activities to really help mitigate and prevent access to your accounts is really, really a, a strong way to deter this type of fraud. Yeah, I, I think the technology component, the data component that you're talking about is a huge part of what financial institutions are bringing to the table these days to keep their consumers safe. I think the sheer number and variety of parameters that financial institutions are able to test these days, not just individual parameters themselves, but also how they kind of interact and how they might influence or inform one another. Uh, I think that that goes a long way to engaging in identity authentication and verification protocols and keeping criminals out while still allowing users the near frictionless experiences that they're hoping for and growing used to. I'm amazed constantly, actually, by the sorts of parameters that FIs are bringing to bear and how many of those are even transparent to the user where it doesn't require any particular actions on their part. But you can look at device identifiers, like Carrie mentioned, IP addresses, IMEI data. You can look at linkages between devices and where identities have been presented before, even outside of the institution itself. Uh, and you can look even at behavioral tendencies that a user exhibits while accessing or utilizing their own accounts. And then with the artificial intelligence part of it, you can go beyond just those static rules-based systems that have dominated the space for so long, and you can be more dynamic and flexible in how you're uh, authenticating these users. And I, I think all of that is for unauthorized access to accounts. I think where scams are concerned, uh, it's going back to that education piece. As Carrie had alluded to earlier, when consumers are scammed into performing transactions themselves, there's only so much a financial institution can do from a technology perspective to recognize that activity being conducted isn't at the will of the consumer. 
simply because all of the identifying characteristics rightly show that it's the consumer doing the transaction. So in that instance, in the case of scams, that educational component, again, becomes all the more important, I think. Let's talk about some of these scams that we're seeing in this space. There's another trend that's increasingly growing, and it relates to online travel bookings or events. Carrie, what do these scams entail? Yeah, I mean, this gets into, you know, everyone's desire for experience, right? I mean, experiences are, are really what drives whether it be, you know, families, couples, individuals, you know, like we, we want, like I'm a, I'm a huge basketball fan. I went out of my way to see LeBron James play the other day because I, I, I wanted that experience. And, you know, if you type in Lakers tickets, you get a slew of different places where you can buy, you know, tickets to an event, right? And it works for hotels. It works for, you know, for airlines or, or any, you know, any um, vacation experience. And what we're seeing is, you know, the fraudsters and, and, you know, it goes back to, you know, what Kevin said, technology has really evolved in a way where it's very easy for fraudsters to to replicate and or even create very believable, you know, payment sites and and and, and shopping sites and things like that. And, and everything's real. I mean, to the point where I could buy a ticket, get a physical or a digital copy of a ticket and it could, and it'd be completely unreal. Right. Um, but they've got it down to that much of a science. And I won't know until I show up and, and they scan the ticket and like, that's not real. So, you know, long story short, I mean, these um, types of attacks are really meant to manipulate consumers into purchasing through their websites, offering maybe discounts or better options, better experiences, which drives them to it. They pay for it. And the outcome could be as simple as, you know, you don't get what you paid for. So like I could buy something, you know, maybe I'm buying first row seats and I end up in the back. So maybe I get something real, but it's not what I paid for. To all the way to, I just gave you money and I got nothing. Plus when I give that, I, when I give my credentials to that bad site, I've now exposed it. They can overcharge me and I've got no recourse potentially, or, I'm, or my bank is ultimately maybe responsible for it. Yeah, I think as with any kind of purchase scam, uh, what criminals are ultimately taking advantage of with travel bookings or event bookings is too good to be true situations, right? Um, and it's becoming more and more difficult, I think, to comparison shop online. Because just as Carrie mentioned, it's like every other day that a new aggregating website comes online, right? It used to be there were two or three that did it for hotels and airlines and things like that. But now every time I search for a flight, I find at least three more and I've never heard of them before. And sometimes they end up being legit and sometimes they don't. And it can be really hard to tell the difference because it's not very difficult anymore. You don't need a whole lot of skills to create those kinds of websites. So I, I think I definitely understand where it's becoming more of a problem. I think that also speaks to the importance of independent verification of the merchants that you're doing business with, right? Uh, you need to look beyond just the website that attracted your attention to the deal. Uh, you need to look across the internet and see if there are mentions of this business or this website in other places that aren't associated with them. Look at the Better Business Bureau, see if they have any complaints against them, all of those kinds of things. Uh, because one website isn't enough. And if you're not able to find anything else, anyone who's had any experience with this company before, uh, chances are it's not a legitimate circumstance and you don't want to go through them. Let's talk about merchant scams, which are also becoming more prevalent. Carrie, what are some of the merchant scams that consumers and banks should be on the lookout for? 
Yeah, so there's a number of, you know, different scams that are popping up. Uh, you know, one of them that's kind of particularly, you know, makes a resurgence around the holidays, but, you know, has really, really been something that really is, has boosted as things have moved more digital in recent years. And, you know, post-COVID, I mean, I think we all got kind of got accustomed to ordering our stuff. Not that it wasn't already increasing, but I think it, I think it's really become the way that people shop. I, I, I remember talking to my mom and her basically saying she doesn't go to, uh, she doesn't go to the store anymore. She just goes to Amazon to, you know, to, to do all our Christmas shopping. So, you know, what we're seeing as it relates to that is, is brushing scams. And what that entails is really the objective, right? The objective of the merchant in a brushing scam is ultimately to drive more sales, but based on a false pretense, right? So what we see is, and, and you know, just as just a common scheme is any one of us gets a package at our door. You know, we open it, we see it at some, you know, innocu- innocuous kind of small item or Maybe it's usable or valuable. Maybe it's like junk. But the idea is, is that you've now ordered this item. It's yours. You can keep it. But what the merchant or the fraudster is doing is they've gotten your information. The fact that they sent you an item means they've got your name. They've got your address. They probably have your email address. They've got enough information to now create a profile of you on their, on their website. And what they're going to do is write a very nice review about the product that they've sent you. And that's all with the intent to drive sales back to their website. And that allows them to inflate their sales, inflate their numbers, push additional volume to their website where they can sell that same junk to many, many other people, and maybe even drive other sales where you might not get what you paid for. I've had friends who have fallen victim to that where they see these high ratings for a smartwatch or something like that. And then, and then they, you know, they don't even get that or it's some, some piece of junk, but the reviews were great. And it's possible that those were a result of a brushing scam. So that's one of the things that is really, really prevalent, not only this time of year, but, but it's just occurs throughout because it's, it's a, it's a way for merchants and, and, and retailers to really, you know, drive some additional sales without any work because they're basically purchasing their own, their own items, which, doesn't cost them anything and and then they're driving additional sales through that lie that they're that they're telling through those reviews. Yeah, and I would say that if one thing about a business interaction looks sketchy, chances are the whole thing should just be avoided, right? So if you're we talked before about getting unsolicited phone calls or texts or emails, all the more if you're getting unsolicited packages, right? And somebody's telling you that they're going to give you something for free, watch out, right? Cuz it, it's not going to end well. On top of that, I think uh, just the idea that I mentioned before, independent verification of the people that you are shopping with matters. If you're inclined to do business with uh, any particular company because they provided you a good or service for free or because you are looking and you're seeing that they've got positive reviews, go outside of that website. Look for another source that speaks to interactions with that business because it's all too often that businesses can inflate those reviews. Uh, I know there were some pretty prominent names in the news in the last couple of years that were found to be doing the same thing. There are even companies that not quite the same as a brushing scam, but they'll pay individuals who have actually bought goods from them to go and leave a review or they'll offer them a, an upsell or something like that for free. So although user feedback on the website itself is convenience and in many cases really is a good indication of who you're doing business with and whether or not the product is what you're looking for. 
if it's a name you don't know, if you haven't shopped with them before, look beyond that just to see, to make sure that these people really exist. Uh, maybe even see if they're registered as a business, all those kinds of things, where they're registered, when they're registered, uh, because for sure, when they're running scams like this often enough, they're probably going to not last for too long. They're going to open up under a different name tomorrow. So uh, I think you can watch for those kinds of indicators to to help keep yourself safe from these sorts of things. And again, I would say if someone sent you something for free, say thank you and just let that be the end of it. Right. Don't yeah. don't go back to them. Don't go looking for more. Yeah, I think, you know, Kevin, like we, uh, you know, we talked about like how important it is to establish trust. And, you know, it's it's this is kind of an example of what the bad guys are doing to establish trust, right? They're manipulating consumers to say, hey, trust us. Look at all of these positive reviews. So I think to your point, it's like you have to do that extra due diligence because their whole job is to manipulate you into obtaining, you know, your funds and and getting your buy-in, getting your data. But trust starts with knowing. You can't know just off the word of the internet or just off, you know, because we all know deep fakes and everything else that's out there with, with Gen AI, everything should be kind of approached with a bit of skepticism, right? And I think, I think this is just an example, you know, another big trend that's, that we're seeing and it, and it affects, it affects like, uh, like a mer- merchant service providers. Um, think about like the, the squares of the world, and, you know, or the, you know, the kind of the intermediary providers and that's collusion. Right. So that's these scenarios where any one of us starts a business or we run a business and, you know, I might work with my my friends or my family to buy up a bunch of goods or products and then return them quickly. But then I delay settlement. And so so I'm not out the money and then I disappear with the funds only to leave the provider holding the bag. And that's that. I mean, that's just a simple uh, case of collusion. But, you know, that that's one that's really, really starting to rear its ugly head in the industry. And I think the way that the best way to kind of stop these kind of merchant related scams is to really, you know, not only ensure that there's because, you know, these are the merchants doing the bad guys. So obviously the, the criminal activity, but education is obviously still important because the banks, because the service providers or the acquirers may end up, you know, responsible. The technology really, really comes into play, you know, leveraging fraud prevention tools is going to be really, really important in, in helping to identify because you'll see, you know, these kind of like what we call cold start, right? Merchant doesn't exist and all of a sudden they've got tons of sales, tons of volume. Those are red flags. You know, those are things that, you know, you need to be aware of. Similar amounts, similar locations, IP addresses, like, so know your data, know what's behind the transaction and be equipped to to react very quickly to it. And that's that's how you can kind of mitigate and or prevent these types of attacks. Yeah, I think that's all uh, very good points. I think it's important to recognize in what you're saying too, that it's not always consumers directly that are the target of fraud, right? I mean, any level from buyer to seller and everything in between can be targeted for it as well. And in the case of collusion, like you're talking about, I think that uh, very oftentimes that cost, even though it may go to a corporation or a payment service provider or something like that, uh, in the end, that cost ends up trickling down and affecting everybody else in that commercial path, right? So those costs eventually end up finding their way back to legitimate merchants in that they have to increase costs for their products, which affects consumers. You end up with higher transaction fees through payment providers, things like that. Yeah, so for sure, the fraud is affecting not just consumers directly, but at that merchant level, at the acquirer level, the payment provider level. 
everybody's kind of in the same game. And as far as what you're saying about uh, bringing technology to bear, I think even some of the protocols that exist around device authentication for identities goes a long way to battling some of those types of fraud where perhaps the buyer and the seller are in collusion, right? And running a scam of their own, uh, where you can show that purchases that are now requesting refunds, that they were all conducted by the same individual who's now asking for the refund, right? You can show that you're saying it wasn't you, but it was your IP address that was used, or it was your mobile device that was used or something like that. I think, again, that technology piece becomes important in preventing even these types of fraud. Harry, when we previously spoke, you know, this term that I wasn't quite aware of kind of came up, uh, pig butchering. Not going to lie, it sounds pretty bad, but can you describe <laughs> what that is for the audience? Yeah, and it's interesting because it, you know, when you think about pig butchering, right, like in general, it's like the the real pig butchering. You fatten the pig up and before the slaughter to get the best meat. What's happening in this particular type of attack is it's a manipulation of a consumer, oftentimes someone who is looking to invest and get a fast return, right? So the promise is, look, invest in, it could be a cryptocurrency, it could be some kind of a stock, it can be some holding or, or you know, real estate, anything, right? And the idea is, is that there's going to be this fast turnaround of your investment and they'll guarantee it. They'll promise you that fast returns and, and what ends up happening is they'll show it to you. So, you know, again, we talk about, you know, how easy it is to manipulate websites. So you'll log in, you'll have a login, you'll see your account, you'll see the money going up. You'll think everything's thing is great. They'll manipulate you into investing more saying, hey, look, look at what you're doing. The minute you start trying to take money out, the problems begin. There'll be excuses. Hey, we've got to hold the money for regulatory reasons. The website's down. Give us a few days. We'll, we'll get it to you. And then eventually as you continue through the process, they'll disappear and you won't, you'll be out of the money. And this one actually hits close to home. I had a friend who was manipulated by one of these attacks, lost a substantial amount of money and not, and when you think about it, they're establishing an account. They're oftentimes asking you for, for the most personal of your information. So security numbers, addresses, phone numbers, everything that could also then use to turn around and do full ID theft or synthetic fraud. So you know, there's almost like a ripple effect of this type of attack that really just leaves the victim, you know, kind of at a, at a, at a substantial loss. And, you know, this is one you've got to watch out for. You, you, you absolutely have to, you know, it goes back to trust. If you don't know the person you're sending money to, if you don't know what you're investing in, if it sounds too good to be true, it is not true. <laughs> um, I was going to say it is true. No, it's definitely not true. Um, so you definitely want to, uh, to be cautious whenever there's no get rich quick scheme that's not going to be, you know, somewhat shady unless you win the lottery. So, you know, you got to be you got to be real careful. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think when it comes to investing scams in particular, I think most often people get caught up in those when they lose balance or they lose focus on both potential sides of a trade. Right. If anybody is telling you that it's a sure thing or that it's uh, going to result in. Uh, large profits with basically no risk, uh, it's very unlikely to be true, right? Uh, investment just doesn't work that way. So if you find yourself too solely focused on the reward and not concerning yourself with or doing your due diligence around the potential cost of that investment, uh, you're probably best just walking away. 
Um, and as we've been saying over and over, even apart from investments specifically, you should always research an unfamiliar company prior to doing business with them. You don't want to send substantial amounts of uh, capital to somebody that you've never done business with before. And that could very well, as you said, uh, turn up uh, and disappear the, the following day. As we come to an end, I'd like to circle back on something that both of you have really touched upon, and that's how crucial technology is in this. You both shared that it seems that fraudsters have become increasingly adapted at executing new forms of fraud. So how can technology help in preventing these types of attacks? Yeah, I'll kick off. I mean, look, it's so important in a peer-to-peer transaction or even a B2C transaction to establish trust. And one of the best ways to establish trust is through identity, right? You know, authentication, identification, that is just one of the the powerful tools. And with, you know, with biometrics, with with multi-factor authentication, behavioral biometrics, where a lot of these activities occur over devices, right? A lot of these interactions happen where I'm typing information, I'm sending information, I'm receiving it. Um, And so there's a lot of different ways that we can validate the users on both ends of the equation. And so if I, if I don't know what's on the other side, there's ways that we can establish risk. If what I expect on, on my side looks different than what I've seen historically, I can identify risk and that gives us the opportunity to, to prevent. So there's, you know, so authentication, identif- IDNV is very, very important in mitigation. And then on the transactional side, you know, and, and you know, I've, I've lived this throughout my career in fraud, but leveraging AI and machine learning and the, and the tools related to, to risk scoring, to identify pattern behaviors uh, or pattern changes, behavioral changes, changes in, in the landscape of payments, changes in what types of activities are happening. Those are often identifiers of things that are worth looking into. So whether they're good or not, any change is worth evaluating because it could be the, it could be the genesis of something either really good or really bad, but if you don't have the tools in place to identify those shifts in behaviors and patterns, you might miss something, right? And in a lot of cases, you're missing fraud. We see, and we, we didn't talk a lot about like card fraud during this session, but I mean, even, you know, even like with the rise of bin attacks and, and enumeration fraud, a lot of that is predicated on improvements in technology where it's not the old days where they just, they just you know, brute force a bunch of transactions for large dollar amounts and hope they get lucky. They've gotten so much more sophisticated where the activities kind of s- spread apart and they and they look more like normal transactions and they have more and they're and they're using real merchants that you're familiar with. So it's much harder to detect and and having the right tools in place that can pick up on the nuances of fraud patterns is really really important. So, you know, I I think technology plays a major role. It should be the second half of that education, you know, message that we talked about where if we empower our consumers to protect themselves, that's the first line of mitigation. And then, you know, what what providers do on both ends, both on the merchant end and on the on the issuing side, the controls, the tools, the technology, the smarts to be able to identify these these new trends and attacks is really what's going to allow us to to mitigate and hopefully push the push the bad guys away. Yeah, for sure. I, I think major contribution that technology has in preventing fraud is just the automation and increased speed that it allows for. I think that a lot of attempts to recognize and interrupt fraud uh, end up being hindered by manual processes that drain financial institutions and businesses 
of their resources in terms of personnel's time and attention, in terms of the staffing, uh, in terms of the systems that create the reports and how you go about uh, clearing potential fraud alerts and things like that. So the automation piece, I think, vastly affects the financial institution or a business's ability to identify and interrupt fraud as it's happening. Also, as Carrie was talking about uh, the integration of data, being able to detect anomalies in behavioral patterns becomes far easier and a far more dynamic process. As I mentioned before, it's not based solely on static rules-based protocols. Artificial intelligence and machine learning can actually look across parameters and see how uh, an individual's behavior might be changing in subtle ways that would be unavailable to or not obvious enough to an individual looking through an account. And again, it would certainly happen much faster. Uh, beyond that, the only other thing I would mention is uh, I'm encouraged to see that the technology that is being employed more and more often is breaking down some of those silos across companies where they're integrating data from diverse sources. So you're not just looking for checking account fraud or credit card fraud or loan fraud. You're looking across all those account types. And oftentimes you're even looking across individual account holders and you're looking for patterns there that can help you better identify this fraud and, and get in the way of it and keep consumers safe going forward. You both covered so much. Any parting thoughts or final messages for the audience? Yeah, I think we all have a responsibility in the payments ecosystem as it evolves, right? Whether we're the one making the payment or the one or we're the ones, you know, facilitating the payments and, and ultimately protecting the ecosystem, we all have a part to play in it. And I think it starts with awareness. It starts with understanding the risks that are out there, how the ecosystem is evolving, and then understanding that as the ecosystem evolves and as and as technology evolves, right? I mean, everyone, everyone's aware of machine learning. Everyone's aware of, you know, supercomputers and how fast things are able to move and how fast data moves and changes. We have to be able to, to quickly identify risk and adapt to it. And that's across whether it's the consumer saying, hey, I don't know if I should trust this, this, uh, this email or this text. Let me do some due diligence. Or it's the bank saying, hey, my consumer's at risk. I need to make sure I have technology to help prevent access to, to their accounts. Or the merchant that says, hey, there's some manipulation going on, or there's some, there's, you know, there's some, you know, increase in inactivity that that that's unusual. Let me make sure I've got controls to 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 mitigate and protect. It's all you know something that we have to do together. And I I think that's the goal of this this session is to make sure that we understand the risks and that we're prepared to address them to to really stop fraudsters in their tracks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think all I would add to that is a message to consumers, uh, which is super simple. It's just try to be smart about what you're doing. Take a moment to pause and consider what you're doing, who you're purchasing from or sending money to, who you're giving your personal information to, uh, how much do you really know about them, who initiated the contact, was it you, was it them? Uh, knowing who you're engaging with and what you're signing up for before you act goes a long way to keep your, yourself safe from each of those scam types that we've talked about today. Thank you both so much for sharing your insights and perspective. And thanks to everyone for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe and stay updated on the latest Payment Journal episodes. And don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. 